from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. Who has the right to water? Does hydrology shape our relations? What does water even mean to people? These are some of the questions that we'll explore on this week's episode. My name is Elizabeth Dowdell, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, storytelling, and ideas. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this episode was written, recorded, and produced in Amesquichi, Wiscayagan, Beaver Hills House on Treaty 6 land, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. Our home studio, CJSR 88.5 FM, broadcasts from unrecognized Papas Chase territory. Our episode this week is about water. We discuss water as a material resource, but also in terms of ontologies, the philosophical beliefs we hold about reality. While you listen, I ask you to consider what your beliefs are about water. Do you believe water is life? Do your actions toward water align with and respect your beliefs? Do your actions align with and respect the beliefs of the indigenous peoples whose lands you occupy? So let's just look at the last decade and a few key moments around the human right to water. This is an image of Pablo Salón, the Bolivian ambassador to the UN, who in 2010 gave a very stirring speech on the floor of the assembly, whereby he snapped his fingers three times to symbolize the amount of time it takes for another child to die of a preventable disease, including lack of access to water and sanitation. Soon after his talk, Finally, after many decades of debate, the General Assembly voted to adopt the UN right to water and sanitation, and the floor erupted in cheers. In July 2010, the United Nations General Assembly recognized the human right to water and sanitation. This means that water and water facilities should be sufficient, safe, acceptable, physically accessible, and affordable for all. The resolution formally recognized that not only is water a human right, but that clean drinking water and sanitation are the foundation for the realization of all human rights across the globe. This week, we're talking with Dr. Leila Harris, a professor at the University of British Columbia on Musqueam territory, whose work and research focuses on the social, cultural, political, economic, institutional, and equity dimensions of environmental and resource issues. Her current research focuses on the intersection of environmental issues and inequality or social difference and water governance shifts, like those towards marketization, where supply and demand force decisions, or alternatively, participatory governance, where people take a more active role. Dr. Harris is also the principal investigator of a multi-sided analysis of the non-material dimensions of water insecurity that highlights themes like emotion, trust, sense of belonging, and state legitimacy. We got the chance to speak with Dr. Harris after she gave a talk titled Human Right to Water and Ongoing Challenges, Equity, Implementation, and Shifting State-Society Relations. We'll share a few snippets from that talk, but most of what you'll hear is from my interview. Let me tell you, dear listeners, I was so excited about this conversation. You might know me as an otter enthusiast who has thoughts about environmental news headlines, but in my heart, And in my research, I am a social scientist, 
And all my questions are about meaning, interactions, and the relationships between people and our planet. Human environment relations is kind of a niche research area, but one that puts increasingly important questions about how we interact with our world through rigorous observation and analysis. This is my kind of science. Some of the terms, concepts, and methods might not be as familiar as our other science communication episodes, but we'll try and explain anything new that comes up. Now, here's Dr. Harris to tell us a little bit more about herself and her research. My name is Leila Harris, and I'm currently a professor at the University of British Columbia. I hold a joint appointment both in the Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability, and also in the Institute for Gender, Race, Sexuality and Social Justice. And in some, my work really bridges those dimensions in that I work mainly on environmental justice questions or the intersections of social difference and inequality and environmental resource issues. And to date, most of my work has been sort of political ecology work, especially on water politics and also on questions of development or issues of gender and inequality. So those have been some of the major themes. My training is as a political and cultural geographer for my master's and PhD. And I did that at the University of Minnesota. And prior to that, I had studied political economy at UC Berkeley as an undergrad. So most of my work has really focused on questions of marginality or developing context issues. And a lot of that just comes both from my personal interest, um, my long-term interest in Turkey, where my mother is from, uh, sort of spurred me to get interested in these issues as they play out in Turkey, which is where I did my dissertation work. But then also, you know, I look at other issues around inequality as they manifest in the US and Canada. So I've done work, for instance, on First Nations water and also aiming to support students who are working on those sorts of themes. You recently gave a talk with the U of A sociology department about a specific project you're working on. I'm wondering if you can give us a bit of a plain language explanation of, of that project and that research. As I said, I've long been interested in water issues. And a, a key question that animated a lot of my earlier work was how is it that developing countries in particular, maybe where there are capacity issues, are going to be able to manage resources going into the future, especially with climate change. So for many years, I had focused on Turkey's use and development of the Tiger Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So that made me sort of a water person. I had focused on damming and development and irrigation and some of the social and political dynamics around the use of the Tigris and Euphrates. But then I sort of became more interested in some of the other debates around water. And especially I was tracking a lot of the issues around privatization and decentralization of water. And what were these new governance shifts that were occurring and what consequences were they having in different areas of the world? And so I did sort of broad lit review based work trying to understand what was happening, for instance, with water markets in Chile, what was happening in Turkey with decentralization and privatization of some of the water, water provision just sort of the global and conceptual debates around how we can best manage water. And out of that broad lit review, I sort of shifted to this project that I was speaking to the other day in that I was really interested in doing multi-sided work, not just in one country, but trying to understand broader trends and phenomenon, but also with, because I'm a geographer, with great attention to the specificity in terms of how those issues play out in various contexts and really matter for people's everyday lives. So those are themes that I hope uh, you observed in the talk in terms of me trying to understand broad trends. So things like the human right to water or privatization, but with 
really focused attention on how these really matter for people's everyday experiences or you know how they can navigate that and how people actually live with those realities rather than just broad debates about which one's better. And we're gonna say it's in the name of the poor or impoverished or people who don't have access to water, but we won't actually talk with them and actually understand what they, what they think of the issues or how this matters for their lives. So this project was conceived as one where I could do multi-sided work on sort of broad trends and governance questions. Initially, I did look quite a bit at issues of privatization and commodification, but it, it did sort of morph over time to be a little bit more about the human right to water, as I spoke about the other day. But you know, I was really interested mainly in focusing on marginalized areas and really trying to get a sense of from those communities, what were the issues around human right to water and what are they emphasizing politically or otherwise that really are important for them. Dr. Harris and her team are conducting research in two different places, thus a multi-sided investigation. Using surveys and other methods, the research team is working with communities in Ghana and South Africa to identify what issues related to water are important to the people. Dr. Harris and her team want to know how the UN human right to water has been implemented on the ground and what people's daily lived experience is like in terms of water use and access more than 10 years after the framework was first introduced. You can hear more about the project and Dr. Harris's findings in the full talk, which we've linked in our show notes. For now, let's get to every academic's favorite part of the research process and hear about some critiques of the human right to water. But there's been a lot of debate from critics about how effective this framework is as a policy and as a discourse. So there's been a round number of critiques that have come forward. And I'm sure, especially those of you who are sociologists are more than familiar with some of these types of critiques. But it's been noted, for instance, that the fact that the human right to water is very state-centric uh, is problematic. It's very Western-centric, individualistic. It's human-centered. It doesn't take adequate account for non-humans. Um, the fact that it can be consistent with privatization or commodification agendas, all of these have sort of given people reason to pause and to be skeptical about this framework and whether or not it's something that we should be investing our political and policy energies in. Dr. Harris suggests we can get a little more complicated in our relationships to water and each other. In terms of thinking about the human right to water, not only in terms of what we need bodily, what do we need to drink to persist and exist and for our health to be maintained to tomorrow, but how, what are the social relations that are also served by things like access to water or quality of water? One of the terms you had sort of coined and talked about in your, or used in your discussion was this idea of hydrosocial relationships. Can you sort of explain what that term means? And maybe it sounds like some of those were developing through the research process with between you know your group and others, but um, also those sort of locally and on the ground. And so, yeah, if you can just explain that term and maybe um, what it means, why, why, why you needed a new term and a language to, to describe what you were, this phenomenon you were um, researching and exploring. Yeah, so I'm currently teaching a course which is called Social Ecological Systems. And 
what we're grappling with is how are the different ways people either coming from, let's say, a natural science perspective or coming from a social science perspective have aimed to incorporate the other dimensions. Um, but here, hydrosocial has been emergent in work on the social science dimensions of water for some time. That's really not just looking at the social and political questions around water, which many people do and do really great work on, but also tries to think about the actual hydrologic dimensions. So how is it that the principles or conditions of an aquifer impinge on the social and political questions around the use or access to that aquifer and vice versa? So really trying to get at that multivalent, you know, dynamic relationships between hydrologic and social considerations. So not sort of viewing them as totally distinct in the way that maybe uh, earlier science traditions might have, trying to overcome some of the disciplinary silos that makes it more difficult to think across those. Hydrosocial relations fits into the larger idea of socio-ecological systems. Socio-ecological systems theory suggests that humans are not separate from nature. Instead, it encourages us to think of society and ecosystems as highly interconnected. How resilient we are to stress or major change is determined by these linkages between the social, political, and environmental. In practice, you can think about something like the need to bridge the social sciences and natural sciences, along with political and societal changes needed to tackle the climate crisis. In the case of water, Hydrosocial relationships invite us to think about not only the natural or physical dimensions of water, but the human dimensions as well. This means considering all the ways in which water is a part of our relationship to one another, the roles we play in our community, our sense of self and feelings of belonging or exclusion, and even our trust in government. We can take the idea of hydrosocial relationships one step further to think about water as part of our physical bodies. But Estridina Minus talks about watery subjectivity. And I find this also useful just to sort of push ourselves to think differently in a way that water invites us to about broader questions of social connections and networks. So what she says is very simply that all of our bodies are made up mostly of water. We're 70% or so water. Water moves through us. We're porous in a way that really disrupts this notion of a discrete body. Water moves through us, we drink it, we are affected by the waterways that we draw water from, and we also in turn affect those waterways. So she uses this uh, reality around water and the way that it connects us to other people, but also ecologies and other beings to ask us to think differently about our subjectivity and our relationships in a way again that I think mirrors some of the discussions around indigenous, indigenous ontologies and relational ontologies. But here, how can we think instead about our connectivity to landscapes, ecosystems, and each other through this relationship to water and how it moves? Other discussions around water have pushed us in, in yet other ways that maybe could impinge on the human right to water as well. So of course, we have work um, by Anishinaabe scholars such as Deb McGregor in Canada, who have talked about the different ontologies that are relevant for water where we need to think about all of the social relationships and other connections um, that affect our relationship to water. One of the, in some of our past episodes, we've talked with um, different elders and knowledge holders and we're situated here in Treaty 6. And the treaty def description that talks about 
this relationship lasting as long as the waters flow and how there's a relationship to water, not just as the material resource that we're familiar with, but the idea of birth waters, of the blood of life, right? That humans are porous, that humans are water, that it is also um, lineages, right? Which has been a really interesting relationship uh, to explore and to talk about with different different people. And so I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit on this difference then between, you had some really great critiques in your talk about the idea of the human right to water, that it was neoliberal, that it was individualistic, that it was human centric. Um, I'm wondering if you can maybe comment a little bit or give us a bit of a, a description on the difference between something like the human right to water which sounds very noble and valuable and beneficial and something that might be more familiar here in Canada or in the Turtle Island context of like water is life and that kind of concept or ethos and instead and what might be different between these. I mean it's a fantastic question and it's one that I would you know want to think through for the next couple of years if not decades. <laughs> um, but just to Fair, get yeah. just to give an immediate response I do think that part of the reason even though I've been working with some projects in Canada, the human right to water hasn't been a central focus. It, it is because there are a lot of uh, First Nations and others who are using that in terms of the responsibilities of government to you know, manage and more effectively and get rid of this two-tiered water system that we have, particularly with respect to drinking water in the country. So it does have some traction here, but when you think about indigenous ontologies around water and some work that I've done, especially led by Nicole Wilson, who had worked with us at UBC and is now a CRC at University of Manitoba, really makes me think that there are some key disjunctures in the sort of more policy framework and utilitarian focus on the human right to water that is very goal-oriented in terms of drinking water. I have pushed for an expansion of it beyond just a minimum per human needs perspective, which is maybe somehow, some ways it's been instrumentalized in different policy frameworks. So I am attentive to broadening beyond that. But I do think that if you're really taking seriously a lot of uh, ontologies around water that might be more around water is life or water is lifeblood, or some of the things that you've mentioned, human right to water probably wouldn't emerge as a that compatible of a frame or that important of a frame. And so, you know, I think it is one important frame that I think is useful in those policy spaces and contexts, but it also sort of does um, move away from the very strong attention to the relational ontologies or, you know, water is relative. Nicole's work is really excellent. She has another paper that she wrote with Inkster on questions around respect for water and what this really looks like from the elders that she spoke with up in the Yukon. And so when you read those narratives from the elders, I just feel like it is a totally different understanding about our responsibilities to each other and to water um, through that relational perspective, which is a very rich and important one here that you know I don't see again smoothly articulating with human right to water, especially as it's been discussed to date. Um, and then you could say, well, can we just expand the human right to water, which again is what I tried to do a little bit conceptually at the end of my talk. And I do think there is some space for that, but every concept also has a lineage and a history, you know, and this tends to be one that's more allowing um, different countries and also communities to come together with a basic framework. And, you know, I don't think it captures the richness of some of those indigenous ontologies that you were mentioning. I know the work of another colleague, David Boyd, you know, he is very much focused on human rights 
and he's now currently working with the UN. He's been pushing for us to adopt a stronger human right to water and human right to healthy environment framework in Canada. And part of his purpose is because he is animated by issues, for instance, around indigenous uh, questions around water access. And he's also written on that and also issues around air quality and other things that are serious concerns from an environmental justice perspective. And empirically, uh, he's convinced that when countries and governments do have strong frameworks around human rights, the better environmental and environmental justice outcomes do follow. Water has a powerful presence in our lives, but it does so much more for us than just meet our basic needs. Water and the places it runs through hold stories and knowledge that bridge generations. Some Indigenous ontologies view water as relational and interconnected to all human and non-human life. What does ontology mean? Ontology comes from philosophy, and it is the study of being. What our ontology represents is our view of the world and what we see as real. So these Indigenous ontologies around water include understandings about our responsibilities to one another and to the natural world. Water is life has been a symbol and a statement that brings together Indigenous peoples and allies in solidarity over the protection of water that is under threat from resource extraction and industrial development. The statement, water is life, entered my vocabulary when water protectors, including members of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, came together in nonviolent protest against the North Dakota Access Pipeline at the confluence of the Cannonball and Missouri Rivers. Research on the human experience of frameworks such as the human right to water and comparison to different frames like water is life can get us thinking about our relationship with water. Dr. Harris explains why that is a good thing and how it can benefit real life communities. Something I was wondering if you could expand on, it was a comment near the end of your talk, social research and how it's not just a matter of, or it's not just the truth of the matter that you are working towards and trying to uncover and develop, but a matter of being creative and also helpful to communities. So yeah, could you maybe just expand on that a little bit and why, why that matters? I do think there's this core question about what is research and what is good research. And you know, when it comes down to it, there is some way in which research helps us understand the world, you know, which would be more part of that uh, perspective that research is to uncover you know, mechanisms and truths and so forth. But I think for the most part, good research is something that's useful to the world and to the communities that you work with. So you know, these are core questions in terms of what constitutes research, what is good research. But I was sort of arguing that we do want to understand how water affects communities. We want to know the health implications, you know, for sure, of when we don't have good quality water or safer, affordable access to water. But I would similarly argue on two levels that narratives around water are just as important as the realities of the water conditions themselves. So how do people think about the water? How do they respond to it? If even if people have safe water, if they don't believe it's safe, they won't drink it, you know, and or I'm looking, as you know, at not only do people have safe and affordable water, but how does this water express other issues of importance for them, like how they feel unequal or that they're treated unequally in the broader social political context, which was a major theme of what I spoke to. 
So that would argue for, you know, not only just uncovering the truths about the issue from a very environmental science perspective, but really understanding the more social and political dimensions around the issue. And that's why I often favor narrative approaches to get at what people say about that issue and not trying to study the thing itself, but more understanding the meanings uh, that circulate around the environmental questions that I'm interested in. But secondarily, which is another way of answering the question, you know, I would even wonder, and I'm increasingly convinced about the value of very creative arts-based approaches, and they do reveal other truths around the world, but they can be more of a, a collaborative experience of exploration and finding meaning, which is more through the creative uh, mechanisms and expression that you explore together and also the collaborative dimension. So you could ask everybody individually what they think and you'll get some answers and perspectives but you, the creative approaches that we're moving more towards with my students and postdocs are really trying to do more exploratory work together, you know, communally or collaboratively with community members to sort of think through meanings and get them to relate in different ways to these environmental questions rather than, you know, asking them and expecting an answer or response. So doing more of an exploratory approach, which new meanings and truths and values do emerge from that process. Um, and, you know, in fact, people's individual relationships with water might also shift through that experience. And that, again, could have societal benefit, which is beyond, you know, our collective knowledge, but more the relationship and knowledge that's formed through the research process when you're working with communities. You might be wondering, what exactly do arts-based and creative methods look like in the social sciences? Once again, Dr. Harris has some answers for us. Yeah, that's, I was going to ask, can you give me some concrete examples of what that looks like, what those methods are when you talk about more arts-based, but just for our listeners to kind of understand what that could be. Uh, we're very excited about some new relationship and collaborative work we're doing with The Only Animal, which is a theater production group based in Vancouver. And they are, we've been in conversation for the past two years, but the only animal is working on a production called Museum of Rain, which is a mystical love story about our changing relationship with water and rain. And we, of course, are researchers who focus on water security and our relationship to water in more academic senses. So we've been engaged in this really beautiful and productive conversation over the past two years about how they can learn from the research and vice versa, we can learn from these creative arts-based methods. And Wow. If funding comes through, which I hope it will, Museum of Rain and the actors and artists working with that theater group will be participating in our storytelling workshops. And as community members share their experiences and narratives of water, the artist um, will be putting that in theatrical form and, and helping to sort of display and express some of that through these different arts-based modalities. So I think it's going to be a really exciting project, you know, to give people a space and again, an artistic opportunity or avenue to explore those relationships. Okay, listeners, check in time. Has your mind been blown? Are your eyes open to a whole new world of dimensions and interactions between us human beings and our material and non-material relationship with water? I hope so. And I hope you enjoyed this dive into the social side of environmental research. Here's a quick review of some terms and ideas that might be new to you this episode. Socioecological systems theory. This theory suggests that humans are not separate from nature. It's the opposite, in fact, 
and our society and ecosystems are highly interconnected. How resilient we are as a society to stress or major change is determined by the linkages between the social, political, and environmental. Hydrosocial relationships. This is a concept that invites us to think about the natural and physical dimensions of water and the human dimensions. It means thinking about all the different ways in which water is a part of our bodies, our relationships to one another, and the roles we play in the community, our sense of self and feelings of belonging or exclusion, even our trust in government. Ontology comes from philosophy and is the study of being. What our ontology represents is our view of the world and what we see as real or true. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Elizabeth Dowdell, and it has been my pleasure to share some social environmental science with you. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. Big shout out this week to me, Elizabeth Dowdell, for the interview and editing, Andrea Miller for researching and writing this episode, and Sophia Osborne for audio production. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, Tara at cgsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Tara Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. We'll catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.